We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. I'm beginning a new series of sermons today, and we're going to call it Authentic Christianity. Think about it this way. There are many varieties of the Christian faith, right? So, I mean, in in terms of there's Catholic and Protestant and Anglican and Baptist and Pentecostal and Presbyterian, the list goes on and on. So on one level, this series of sermons that we're calling Authentic Christianity, on, on one level, I'm going to be talking about that which, at their best, all of those varieties have in common. But on another level, this idea of authentic Christianity, these sermons are going to be about what Christianity is really about, deep down at its heart, at its core, its, its essence. So, for those who are not Christians, or for those who are investigating the Christian faith, my goal is that through this, these next five or six weeks, I want to describe the Christian faith in in a way that helps it become hopefully a little more clear. And my agenda is to commend it. I mean, to recommend the, the Christian faith. And for those of us who are Christians, for us in this series, my goal is that we'll understand the heart of Christianity a little more clearly, and we'll believe it with more confidence, and we'll grow to articulate it and to talk about it with our friends in 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 a way that that gets to the heart of the matter. Let's start with this: the Christian faith, at its core, in its heart, its essence, is about something that happened, something that happened to Jesus, and something that happened. Through Jesus. And that's very different than saying Christianity is about morals or getting to heaven when you die. That at its essence, those things are important. Morality, uh, the fact that your behavior has consequences in, in the next life. But that's not the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is something that happened to Jesus and through Jesus. At its core, at its most basic and essential level... Christianity is about the belief that the one and only living God fulfilled his promise to a nation, to the nation of Israel. And he fulfilled this promise in and through Jesus. And that this promise was to rescue his creation. Now, that's the essence of Christianity. The belief that with Jesus God's one and only rescue operation has been put into effect once and for all. And that by doing this, it's if you can imagine God has swung open a a door in the cosmos that can never again be shut. Now, that's the heart, the essence, the core of Christianity. So for this series... In order to give honest attention to authentic Christianity, we're going to start with the question, who is Jesus? Next week, 
what did Jesus do? And then the several weeks after that, several weeks in a row, how do I follow Jesus? And then the last sermon, why should I follow Jesus? Now, right off the bat, I've raised an issue that I'm not going to deal with. Authentic Christianity requires faith, belief in Jesus. And for authentic Christianity, we discover this Jesus in the Bible. In other words, authentic Christianity trusts the Bible. It it, it trusts that in the Bible, we really encounter the real Jesus. And this is a massive stumbling block for a lot of people. Can we really trust the Bible? Isn't it filled with contradictions? Isn't it uh, just a bunch of myths and legends? And these are really important questions. And a lot of people are asking them, not just Dan Brown and Richard Dawkins, but lots of ordinary people ask these questions. And, and, and we should. These are the kind of questions we need to ask. I'm just not going to answer them in this series. I, I don't have time to. I, I, I love to talk about that stuff. And if you want to talk about it or if you have friends that do, track me down, email me or call me and we'll have coffee or lunch. So what I'm going to do is just simply confess that the Bible is trustworthy and admit to you that everything in this series assumes that. Now, enough with the preliminaries. Let's start with this basic question. Since the essence of authentic Christianity is belief in the Jesus that we encounter in the Bible, it makes good sense to ask, who is this Jesus that the Bible presents to us? What does the Bible say about Jesus? Who does the Bible say Jesus is? And Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, these two verses, the passage that Mary Elizabeth read to us, it's all about that question. So if you have a Bible or if there's one near you in the pew and you want to turn and find Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. This part of the Bible is what we call a gospel. And a gospel means a lot of things. Some Bibles, in fact, label this part of the Bible the gospel according to Luke or Luke's gospel. Part of what it means to call a section of the Bible a gospel is that it's a biography of Jesus. That's not all the word gospel means in this occasion, but that's part of what it means, a biography of Jesus. So in the first chapter of Luke, we have these events that surround the miraculous conception of Jesus. And then in the second chapter of Luke, we have these events that surround these miraculous events that surround Jesus' birth. And then when we get to chapter 3, the first half of the chapter is dedicated to Jesus' cousin, a guy by the name of John. And then once you break the halfway point of the chapter, you get the passage we have tonight that, that Mary Elizabeth read to us, these, these verses about Jesus and his baptism. Now, we know from verse 23, which she didn't read, that Jesus is around 30 years of age. And this is the moment when he launches his public ministry. He's leaving behind his ordinary life. We talked about last week in this hick town 
of Nazareth in kind of obscurity, and he's beginning his public ministry. But before he goes out and starts teaching and healing and doing all this stuff, goes to his cousin John, and he's baptized by John. That's Luke chapter 3. Let's look at verse 21. When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Now, I I want you to notice that in Luke's biography, in his account of Jesus' ministry beginning here, his emphasis is not on the baptism. Grammatically, the emphasis is on three parallel statements. The heavens were opened, the end of verse 21. The Holy Spirit descended. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. So there's Jesus, there's the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and there's this voice from heaven. This is a depiction of what authentic Christianity believes, can't prove, but believes about the nature of God. You have God the Father in heaven declaring his pleasure in Jesus the Son in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Authentic Christianity is unique among all of the religions of the world on this issue. It believes and teaches that God is a trinity. That that God is one being who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's God the Son. Now, this is so important. This, if, if, if you want to know who the real God is, Luke, the author of this biography, he's making a statement. He's saying, if you want to know who the one and only real true God is, as opposed to all the non-gods, of other religions, then you must think in terms of the Father who sent His Son in the power of the Spirit in order to fulfill His centuries-old promise to rescue His creation from the ravages of sin. Now, this is a confession. It's a claim. It's a basic, non-negotiable of authentic Christianity. So who is Jesus? Luke is saying right off the bat here, he is not merely a teacher of timeless truths. He's not merely a really upstanding kind of individual. He is the only real God, the creator God, the only true God who has come into the flesh. And, And there's a mystery here. I mean, this really short circuits, you know, all our, the synapses in our brains, We say there's only one true and living God, but we confess that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at the baptism of Jesus, we see this depicted. God is triune, and Jesus is God. And this is essential to authentic Christianity. But there's more. In this passage, the way in which the Holy Spirit is combined with the Father declaring His love of the Son. This is something that no Jew would have read or seen or heard about without immediately thinking 
of the entire Jewish backstory. Now, remember, Jesus is a Jew. John the Baptist, who's baptizing him, is a Jew. This is a Jewish ritual they're going through. All of this is occurring within the context of Judaism. If you're following along in your Bible, hold your finger there and flip a bunch of pages back to Isaiah chapter 42. This passage that Emily read to us. Verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Do you see it? There's that combination of delight and pleasure and, and the gift of the spirit coming upon this one. Now, Isaiah 42 was written centuries before the baptism of Jesus. But it was a very famous passage of Scripture at that time. At the time Jesus was baptized, it was one of the most popular passages of Scripture in a very religious culture. The Jewish culture was extremely messianic. They were constantly waiting for their Messiah. And when they talked about the Messiah they were waiting for, they frequently would quote, Isaiah 42, not just the preachers, not just the religious leaders, but even the man on the street kind of people. So in Luke chapter three, when when he describes this event in the life of Jesus, he's describing it in a way that deliberately alludes to this backstory. This idea that God has been at work for centuries. He's been promising some things for centuries. Look what it says at the end of verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint. In verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Down to verse 7. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Now, this is a prophecy. This was something that God promised Israel centuries before Jesus. And what he's saying is, I am going to send someone who will launch my once and for all rescue plan to set people free, to bring people out of darkness, to to give sight, to do all of this stuff, to make everything new again. Authentic Christianity claims that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those century-long promises to the Jews. Jesus Christ, according to Christianity, is the only solution that God has provided to the brokenness of this world. There's another place in the book of Isaiah where the people are crying out to God and they're begging God, fulfill your promises, please God, please God. And at one point as they're begging God, they say, oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And in the baptism of Jesus, we see How God answers this centuries old cry. He opens the heavens. And he sends his son to fulfill his promise. To rescue his creation. This belief 
that that is who Jesus is. It is at the heart of authentic Christianity. Now, there's one more thing we've got to see in this passage. The first two things that Luke 3, 21 and 22 are saying to us about authentic Christianity have to do with beliefs. It says to us that at its heart, at its essence, Christianity is about what you believe about Jesus Christ. And it's believing something very particular, that he's God, that he's a part of the Trinity, and that he is God's once and for all solution to this ancient promise. But he's also saying something, something to us that's not at the level of belief, but it's at the level of action. Go back to Luke chapter 3. Look at verse 2. A passage that we didn't hear earlier. Luke 3, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So here's John, Jesus' cousin. He's baptizing people, but notice what kind of baptism it is. It's a very specific baptism. Now, baptism for the Jews, this is very interesting, was a ritual that non-Jews went through in order to convert into Judaism. And John goes out into the wilderness and he says, we are so messed up, even Jews need to be baptized to come into the heart of authentic Judaism. And it is a baptism, look what he says, of repentance that will prepare you for God's answer. He's saying, Jews, Gentiles, in the same boat. We both, all of us, even though we have all this ancient history with God, we've all of us got to prepare to receive God's once for all solution. So when it says down in verse 21... Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized. This is Jesus endorsing John's message. Jesus hadn't sinned. I mean, that's a major point that's made throughout his biography. So once you realize the whole biography is saying Jesus never sinned, Jesus never sinned. You have to go back and say, then why was Jesus going through this baptism? And what he's doing is he's showing up and he's launching his ministry by saying, listen to John. He's absolutely right. Listen to him. If you want to receive God's once for all solution, you have to repent. You have to have your sins forgiven. Now go back to verse 7. Here's John talking. A group of people have come out to him to be baptized, to do exactly what he told them he wanted them to do. It says, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Now, it seems at first glance that John is rude, right? He invited people to be baptized. And then when they showed up, he yelled at them. You know, this is not the normal thing you do when somebody actually does what you've asked them to do. But do you realize that John was a Jew? He knew that they were steeped in a religion of ritual. And he knew that the perennial temptation with ritualistic religions 
is to engage in the activity without really in your heart engaging. And he's calling them to task for this. He refused to let them be satisfied with mere outward ritual. He doesn't take away the ritual, but he just says you can't do just the outward ritual. He says instead you must produce fruits in keeping with repentance and be baptized. He insists that they genuinely repent of their sins. He's insisting that the ritual of baptism must be accompanied by a real and genuine turning away from sins. Then John goes on to say, and by the way, just because your mammy and your pappy are Jews, that doesn't excuse you from genuine repentance. Just because you've grown up in the faith, just because you're a part of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, this doesn't excuse you from the need for genuine repentance. So here's a third thing about authentic Christianity that comes out of Jesus' baptism. When Jesus allows John to baptize him, he's declaring that John's message is true and that people must personally and radically repent in order to receive salvation. And the same thing is true today. You and I cannot presume that because we go to church or because we've experienced the rituals of the church, baptism, or or the Lord's Supper, we cannot presume that we are securely in God's family. Each and every person must radically repent and radically convert to Jesus in order to be in God's family. Now, Now, I'm not saying Christianity is only about repentance, but it is never without repentance. All spiritual advancement begins by turning away, by owning up to the fact that you are a sinner and turning away from that. And this is, this is so important as we consider what authentic Christianity is. Because this is one of the main places where authentic Christianity is distinguished from this kind of washed out generic version of Christianity that you'll frequently bump into in our culture today. Authentic Christianity is very clear that every person must radically repent and radically turn to Christ if you want to receive His salvation, to be in His family, to have your sins forgiven. Certainly. If you've been in Christianity very long, uh, there's an incredible mystery to how people convert. I mean, if we were to try to come up with a formula for it in this room, by the time you ask the next person to tell their story, it would shatter the established formula. I mean, there's this incredible mystery to how people come into faith. It's this beautifully mysterious thing. But one of the non-negotiable, absolutely essential elements that every single person must have is a deep and profound personal repentance for your own personal sins. One of the hardest parts about communicating authentic Christianity here in the South is that 
The South is a Christian culture. I mean, in the South, Christianity has been co-opted by, by the culture at large. And any time um, a culture co-ops, any time a culture officially adopts, you know, um, a, a religion. And so we pray before, you know, school board meetings or, you know, you, you just find all these vestiges of, of civic Christianity in our culture. Anytime that, that happens, you can always be sure that there are going to be two forms of Christianity, authentic Christianity and a form of Christianity that has lost its distinctiveness, that's been co-opted and is being used to support vested interest. That's the way civic religion works. And, and, and so over the next month or so, one, one of the things that I'm going to be trying to do is to faithfully describe authentic Christianity in such a way that, that we can capture the real contradiction between real Christian faith and the civic Christianity that we so frequently bump into in our culture. And, and tonight we've hit, we've hit the ground running. Tonight we've seen one of the primary differences between authentic Christianity and folk religion. No, no matter what kind of folk religion you're dealing with, that authentic Christianity demands radical conversion. It demands radical personal repentance and conversion. And anytime you get into a Christianity that doesn't demand that, you're into a place that where the edges have been shaved off and you've lost the heart of it. Now, now I hope that that you feel the oddity of the Christian faith. There's an oddness to it. Belief in this strange story of God made man. It's weird. Of a crucified Savior, of resurrection and new creation. And, and I hope that tonight you feel the absurdity of Christian salvation. That you can only be saved through radical repentance and radical Conversion to Jesus. Now, if you are a Christian, I think we need to admit that the Christian faith is odd. And that's something you don't get in civic religion. It loses its oddness. It gets homogenized. There is only one real living God in the whole universe. And this one God formed a unique relationship with the nation of Israel. And this relationship stretched over thousands of years. And in the course of that relationship, this God revealed himself and he made promises to a nation. The nation of Israel that through this nation, he would rescue the entire universe. That's absurd. There's a real absurdity to that. And we, we've got to own up to it. But let's not be afraid of the fact that our view of reality is fundamentally different than those who don't buy into Christianity or those who buy into a version of it called civic Christianity. There's this reality that we celebrate and we share and we rejoice in. And it is a reality that those who do not embrace authentic Christianity, they will find it odd and absurd. But we do not need to evade that or try to slide over it and make it feel less sharp. Too often, the church in our culture tries to fit into the culture instead of just confessing to the culture. 
what we believe. Now, one thing I'm pleading for is that we would all have courage. The courage to hold and proclaim a belief that, get this, cannot be proven. We can't. And I'm, I'm saying, let's stand up to the fact. Let's stop trying to prove Christianity and own up to the fact that it's absurd. It's unprovable. We cannot prove it, at least not if you mean by proof, proof in terms that those who are not Christians will accept. Have you ever tried to prove it in a way that makes sense to you, but those who aren't on the same page as you reject your proof? You know why? Because you're operating off of two basic views of reality. And, and I'm saying let's have the courage to say that, the, that at the heart of authentic Christianity is a set of beliefs that will be doubted by rational minds. And let's have the courage to admit that. But to hold on to it is truth. That at the heart of Christianity is a set of beliefs about God and about Jesus and about salvation. These basic beliefs that cannot be proven by empirical observation. And, and as Christians, let's not sidestep the nature of those beliefs, but humbly admit them. And humbly confess them. We need to courageously and boldly bear witness that Jesus is God and he's the only solution. We cannot prove it. We confess it. And at the end of time, when Jesus returns, the truth of our odd and absurd beliefs will be demonstrated. But until then, we must be bold and steadfast in our witness, and we must be patient in our hope. On the other hand, if you're not a Christian, or if you're investigating Christianity, or if you're filled with doubt and skepticism, then I want to say to you, the only way to discover the truth of Christianity is to try Christianity on for size. Is to fake it. Live like it's true. Be an intentional hypocrite. Pray like it's true. Behave like it's true. Worship like it's true. That is the only way you'll discover if it's true. Because this is a type of truth that can only be validated from the inside out. Now, part of what that means is that if you're a Christian and you've got a friend who's not a Christian and has doubts, the, the only good witness that I know of for authentic Christianity is a church. A group of people that are living it out. You invite. If you've got a friend that has doubts. Instead of trying to prove Christ to them. Dare them to be an intentional hypocrite. Bring them along. Invite them to um, be a part of this community. To be in a home group. To pray. To fake it. And dare them to do an experiment. Because Christianity is only self-validating. If you've got questions or doubts or skepticism, I'm not saying that you don't need to think hard about them. I'm just saying that thinking alone 
is not going to get you there. If that's you or your friend, give me a call. Let's talk. Let's have coffee. Let's get together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for um, the baptism of Jesus and what it shows us about authentic Christianity. God, I pray that you would help all of us to understand this more clearly, to believe it with, with a greater confidence, and, and, and to talk about it with our friends in coherent ways. For those, God, um, who don't know if, if this is true or not, Lord, I ask that you would be patient with them and you would help them to believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen.